Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Kevin Floyd from Shoot the Moon coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She's the owner of Avondale Food and Wine in Montrose. Mary Clarkson, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great, Eric. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, big news from Luby's. They had announced uh, back in June that they were looking to sell their assets. Well, this week they announced that they are they have passed a plan of liquidation and disillusion, their words, that will generate money for their shareholders. Uh, this this pretty much means the end of the road for Luby's. If they don't, they have been looking for a buyer. They have not found a buyer. So what is more likely to happen is that they're going to sell all their assets. They own a lot of land that their restaurants are on, you know, all of their dishes and grills and fryers and all that stuff. And that Luby's is going to go away. Uh, and they also own Fuddruckers. So uh, a lot of Fuddruckers are, are, are on the shopping block too. Um, Mary, I, I know I've painted a fairly dire picture of the state of, of the state of affairs, but do you think that, that this announcement will prompt some deep-pocketed buyer to swoop in at the last minute and save Luby's? Or, or have we eaten our last piece of uh, square <laughs> fish? You know, I don't think that... I think the value here is for them to be broken up. Um, I, I think that their real estate that they're sitting on is probably worth a pretty penny. But I don't know that somebody like a Tillman Fertitta is going to come in and offer top value at this point in time, especially dealing with COVID and everything that we're dealing with there. But I imagine that their FF&E, their equipment and their real estate, it's going to be where the value is here. Yeah. They, they estimate that when they complete this transaction, they will generate between 93 and $123 million that will be distributed to their shareholders. So they think it'll be between three and four bucks a share, depending on how they do selling all that stuff. So yeah, it's, it's unlikely that a buyer I think is going to be able to, to swoop in with an offer and save them. So let me, let me ask you the other obvious question. Will you, will you miss Luby's? Do you think you'll make like one last visit to uh, a Luby's before, before all this goes down? Uh, probably not. Yeah, I mean, I will. I will always think of Luby's as the place I went with my grandparents in the early to mid '80s. I I don't think of Luby's as a place I go now. Not that it doesn't have its its fans in the uh, in the media world. I know Craig Lavati is a big a big advocate of theirs. Mimi Schwartz, the uh, Texas Monthly editor, wrote an essay about how much she's going to miss Luby's. But you know, it's it's just this kind of this kind of comfort food that's, you know, on the bland end that doesn't really have any perspective. I mean, it's just, there's, it's just not the same market for that, that there used to be. I just think, I mean, it was a great concept for such a long time. And I, I wish that the Papa's family, you know, maybe had been able to have been more successful to it, but Papa's family is so good at so many other concepts. So um, you know, I guess they learned a really painful lesson here, but they're such amazing operators. Absolutely. All right. Let us move on to topic number two. The Uptown Park Shopping Center has a new coffee shop. It is Giant Leap Coffee. They started on the East End a few years ago and they built a, they built their own ground up structure. They were offered a, a shipping container and they are affiliated with a design firm called Root Lab. And so they they built their own structure. It's it's right there in the uh, in the promenade, part of a, a host of uh, improvements to Uptown Park. And really, I think what's interesting about this is that there just isn't really a lot of locally owned coffee west of six ten or, or anywhere <laughs> near the Galleria. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's Mercantile, the coffee shop from New Orleans at at San Felipe and Post Oak. And other than that, I can't really think of anything. And so I think. You know, if it's you're a, a really, it's really cute. Have you seen it? It's like a very, very cute structure. It took them a long time to build it, but um, I think it adds to the shopping center. It's not a generic strip mall 
looking coffee shop. No, it's a really pretty build and they make really good coffee. I mean, they use Amaya, which is uh, Max Gonzalez from Catalina's uh, roastery. And it's just a, yeah, I just think it's a really nice, I, I don't, I don't know that we have much to say about this, but, but it is a really nice addition to the area. Yeah. And Root Lab is doing a lot of cool stuff. They're also the people behind um, Night Shift over on the east side on Harrisburg. So very design oriented. So I imagine that they are making wonderful use of a small space because shipping containers, you got to be pretty smart uh, with how you use that small square footage. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what what this holds. I have not been since it's been finished. Well, and, and, you know, they have a location on the east end that's going to open up in the plant, which is the facility where How to Survive on Land and Sea is, which I know you yes. have over to yours. Yeah, and so, I actually met them this past week uh, when Night Shift was doing a pop-up with How to Survive. And um, I don't know, I love stories like this. Like, we're, this is why we all do what we do to support these small local businesses. So I'm excited for them. I just think... Post Oak, let's hope that people on that side of the freeway um, accept uh, small local independent businesses. Well, the Starbucks closed, so that'll help. There's, there's less competition. There you go. <laughs> and there's no drive-through, right? So, like, That's right. No drive-through. I, I hate to say it, but all of us Houstonians are fairly lazy. If we see a drive-through window when it comes to coffee, it's like, oh, we're there. Um, Starbucks closed their one in River Oak Shopping Center that didn't have the drive-through and kept the one with the drive-through. Right. Yeah, no, you'll have to get out of your car to go to Giant Leaf, but I do think <laughs> I do think the quality is worth it. And the, the one other thing is they they have a partnership with Claw Walk, the uh Mexican concept from uh, a couple of former uh Hugo Ortega employees. They make really delicious pastries and you can get those at, at Giant Leaf. So good Yum. for them for supporting kind of up and coming talent. Very cool. Okay, sorry for the interruption. More of what's Eric eating is coming up here in a second. But first, this is super important. Babe Wine has officially made its way to Texas. Yep, that's right. It's the cute, delicious, take-anywhere bubbly wine in a can that pairs well with literally everything. Even your grandma's iconic cornbread. Thanks, Grandma. Find our Grigio, Rosé, and Red Wines at HEB, Specs, Kroger, Walmart, and Target. You're welcome. Now back to the show. Hmm, Rosé and cornbread. Who would have thought? All right, and then topic number three, a new wine bar is coming to the museum district. It is called City Cellars. It is opening in the former Dackenbop space on bins. The owner is a chef named Daniel Wolf, who's done quite a bit of catering, uh, and he worked for HEB for a long time, but he is not, he's not a restaurateur. This will be his first. Um, Mary, let, let's start with the location. What do you think? Is is the museum district kind of the right spot for a new wine bar? You know, I'm put my real estate hat on here for a second. I actually have several listings in that area, and I do think the walkability is getting better and better. And people, especially during COVID, I think a lot of people are staying within their neighborhood rather than going outside of their neighborhood. So I think because of things like that, um, it absolutely will probably do better than it might have before, just based off of density, based off of walkability and people wanting to stick to their neighborhoods. Well, and, and I also think that Barnaby's has done very well that's in that building. And, and I just, there's not, there's not a ton in that area, um, yeah. especially that's kind of casual and uh, kind of wine driven. So, you know, if you, I mean, until city cellars opens, if you want to, you know, a nice glass of wine, either you're going into Montrose, or you're going into Midtown. So, you know, this gives you a local option. And I, and I think you're right. I think people do want to kind of stay closer to their homes. And, and so I, I think for that reason, it will be successful. Uh, I thought I would ask you if you have any advice for Mr. Wolf, as he prepares to open a, a wine bar and restaurant in Houston. Ooh, um, well, we're coming up on our two-year anniversary for Avondale Food and Wine. I would say know your neighborhood, know what your demographic is. I mean, obviously for us, we appeal to our neighborhood in Montrose, but we also draw from outside of it. 
listen to your customers, know the, know who your competition is within your neighborhood and be, stay true to whatever your vision is. Don't try to duplicate anybody else's. Um, and if given the opportunity, you know, support, support the smaller producers like we do. It's far more rewarding to share those stories with people. Um, and I think right now, especially knowing that you might be supporting a husband and wife grower versus a, you know, a big conglomerate, that means a lot. And the quality of the wines is usually so much better. So I would say try to make sure that you're not carrying wine that a ton of other people are um, and, and create as much of a unique experience as you can. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, I mean, essentially, if you can get it in a grocery store, it probably shouldn't be on your wine list. Probably not. You can't compete with price. And, you know, I, Avondale Food and Wine has one of the lowest markups for a wine bar and restaurant in town, um, in addition to our retail shop. So if you're, if you're friendly with that markup, you're going to have more customers. And the consumer has gotten very, very smart about knowing what stuff costs. So give them a good value and you'll, you'll really create a customer uh, for the duration of your business. Right. This is the, uh, the Charles Clark Grant Cooper pricing model, right? If you, uh, yes. you'd rather sell people two bottles of wine at a low markup than one bottle Let of wine at a high markup. I was at two different establishments yesterday, the day that we are closed and uh, the group that I was with absolutely abides by that model. We will buy multiple bottles if you are friendly to us. <laughs> All right. Mary, that does it for our news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. Our restaurants of the week are brought to you by Cutwater Spirits. Cutwater Spirits takes their award-winning real spirits, uses them to make great cocktails, which they then put into cans, so you can easily take them where no cocktail has gone before, even if that's just your own backyard in summer 2020. Cutwater offers a convenient way to enjoy your favorite bar-quality cocktail outside of the bar setting. They have a wide variety of over 17 delicious canned cocktails and 20 bottled spirits, so there is something for everyone. The Vodka Mule, Tequila Margarita, Grapefruit Vodka Soda, and Tequila Soda are just a few of their fan favorites. You can find Cutwater locally at Specs, Total Wine, Goody Goody, and more. Visit CutwaterSpirits.com for more information. Mary, for our Restaurants of the Week, I want to talk to you briefly about a couple of places. Let's start with Brennan's of Houston. Houston institution that has a new chef in the kitchen. Joey Chavez comes with a, a pretty long resume. He came, he came to Houston from Baltimore, but he's got a, a great resume that includes about a year at the French laundry and some time with uh, working uh, for Wolfgang Puck and some other uh, at a hunting lodge in Colorado. So, you know, a, a fresh perspective at a, at a very classic Houston restaurant. Uh, we did not dine there together, but I know you've been there recently. Could you, yes. could you tell when you went to Brennan's that there was a new chef in the kitchen? I could. Oh, I want to say yes, but m most importantly, just the quality was as good as I've ever remembered it, if not better. Um, everything was very fresh. The food was vibrant. The flavors were there. Um yeah, it was some of the best food that's come out of that kitchen that I can remember. Yeah, I, I will say I got invited um, by their public relations firm to have dinner there. And there's a Joey has a chef's tasting menu on. And there were some some really standout <laughs> dishes in that meal. I mean, he's doing this. Uh, it's like a roasted scallop in the shell with a bunch of uh, sort of cheese and herbs and everything. That's like... Um, that was just really, really tasty. And he did this uh, roasted chicken with like a truffle lace stuffing that I really enjoyed and a, a smoked lamb chop that was pretty memorable, you know, and of course it's just, it's such a comfortable place to dine. You know, Marcus Gauss Paul is doing a great job with the wine list, you know, a bunch of uh, European flavors. He was on the show recently talking about some of what he's been doing there. 
and it's just, you know, they just, they make you feel so welcome and so comfortable and it felt so good to dine there. I mean, there's plenty of space between the tables, those, and just those, those high backed, you know, cushy armchairs, they just give you that feeling of privacy, even in a, even in a big space. And I want to say that I think of the restaurants I've been to, of these kind of older, uh, old guard restaurants, I think they are doing such a good job of socially distancing within their dining rooms. Um, I was in one of the downstairs main dining rooms and it felt, it felt good. It felt like there was plenty of distance. They had removed a lot of the tables. The service was still really friendly. It felt good to be there, right? It felt like some sense of normalcy when I haven't had a lot of sense of normalcy during the last six months. So um, for anybody who's missing uh, a celebratory place that used to be their birthday or anniversary type of spot, um, Burden's really is hitting all the notes right now. Right. Well, and it's a large restaurant, so they they have the room to space people out, you yeah. know, and, and they are taking advantage of that. And, and it's Houston Restaurant Weeks has been extended through the end of the month. And so, you know, it is a really nice opportunity for people to go and get you know, check out maybe what's new on the menu, but, but, you know, still finish with the bananas foster. Like don't, something's oh, yeah. a classic. That's a must. And, and, yeah. Ab- <laughs> right. They had, they had new desserts for us to try and we, we dutifully tried and enjoyed them. There's a strawberry. Uh, this is, this is where I'm going to mispronounce this. Uh, Millefoil. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Nailed it. <laughs> I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, uh, my, my French is not good. Anyway. Um, but that was very delicious and that I was very happy to try. But when the server came up and was like, in addition to these desserts in front of you, would you also like bananas foster? The answer was immediately yes, as you must. <laughs> traditions, traditions. Um, yeah, I will say the only thing that came up a little bit short for me was he did a couple of raw seafood dishes that I just thought were a little bit under seasoned. And so, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't think of Brennan's as the kind of restaurant where I want, you know, a, a ceviche style raw preparation or like a, I mean, this was, this was hamachi and peach. It was almost like the, you know, you could joke about Uchi fish and fruit, but uh, you know, it just, it, it didn't quite come together for me. And, but, but like his pate, um, a chicken liver mousse, you know, those roasted scallops, all those dishes uh, I thought were really, really strong. And I'm, I'm excited to kind of see where he goes with the menu just because, you know, you're always going to have snapper poncho train. You're always going to have turtle soup. I mean, those are staples of Brennan's and they should be, but, Absolutely. you know, but he had a, one of the dishes had a, a Peruvian herb, you know, it was seasoned and it's like, that's gotta be the first time that ingredient has ever been in that kitchen. And so whatever kind of new ideas he can bring to the table, I'm, I'm all in favor of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, it's a, it's an institution that's always going to have its classics, but it is still nice that hopefully the chef, it seems is getting some flexibility on bringing his own twist um, to a very uh, well-respected old guard restaurant. So I'm excited to see what's new. Yeah. And then I do also want to just briefly touch on white Elm cafe bakery. Obviously I had, three of the founders of that on the show a few weeks ago. This is the new restaurant in the Memorial area that has pastries from Tassos Katsunas of Breadman Baking Company, a savory menu from Stacy and Scott Simonson of Shenu and Umbel. And it's all overseen by Chico Ramirez, who was one of the guys who founded both the boot and field and tides. Um, it's kind of a fun concept, right? This, you know, bakery, pastries, sweets with uh, a French-inspired savory menu. Uh, Mary, did you have a couple of favorite dishes when you went to White Elm? You know, all of their toasts are good. So I had an avocado uh, toast that was incredible, uh, a vegetarian one. Um, I also had a vegetarian panini uh, that was incredible. I mean, Anybody that can make vegetables sing and taste delightful, I'm totally down for. Tasso's bread, as you know, we buy for Avondale Food and Wine. We buy Breadman Baking Company bread here. The quality is 
top notch and that shines through the food uh, menu here. And, you know, I think for the suburbs, and I'm just going to go ahead and call it the suburbs, um, they're probably starved for options like this, that the quality is there and it's fresh and local and a small independent business. So I think it's probably a, a delight for people that live in this area. Yeah, I had a, a duck banh mi with duck confit in it that I thought was yeah, I, obviously a, a fancy, a very fancy version of that sandwich. But I mean, a really like flavorful duck and a, and a really nice preparation. And as stupid as it sounds, I mean, they're they're frying their palm frites in duck fat and they are fantastic. They're some of the best French. I mean, that is there. the only way to do that. Just let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, some of the best, <laughs> some of the best fries that I've had. Uh, in quite some time. I mean, I thought the pizza was pretty good. I I like their octopus appetizer quite a bit. So yeah, I think I think they're really they were sold out of the that. pizza dough when I was there. I was sad I didn't get to try that, but I would like to they, would like to try that yeah. pizza crust. Certainly a reason to go back. Um, I will say they are kind of playing in the common bond sandbox here a little bit. They are, but that's okay. There's room. There's room for there's room for more than two in the sandbox. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Perhaps three, maybe four. Who knows? But yes, so, I mean, <laughs> uh, he's done such a good job at establishing his brand, and yeah, Common Bond has a a leg up on him in terms of length of of owning his business, but or owning their business. But Breadman's quality is so freaking good. Absolutely. Um, all right. Mary, I'm going to say that does it for our restaurants of the week. Yes. Uh, do you have anything briefly going on at Avondale that you want to tell people about? Uh, yes. I don't have a date yet, but it'll be announced on Instagram and uh, on our website. We are going to do, as we have been doing, a Zoom wine dinner uh, and wine tasting. This one I'm particularly excited about. We have been wanting to do something with this owner for a while, but Kyle McLaughlin of Sex in the City ladies uh, and gentlemen uh, is the owner of a beautiful winery in Columbia Valley um, in Walla Walla. And we are going to be doing three or four wines with him. Um, and the name of the winery is Pursued by Bear. Uh, so he's known for Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrahs, Red Blends, Rosés. Um, so I'm tasting the wines tomorrow and we'll be uh, sending out a menu and date, but we're going to try to keep it very affordable and everybody can tune in and ask Kyle all of your searing uh, questions about wine, food, and his uh, acting career. <laughs> yeah. Uh, skimming his IMDb, Desperate Housewives, a <laughs> um, couple of guest spots on The Good Wife, uh, probably best known as Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks. Dale Cooper in Twin Peaks and uh, Charlotte's husband in Sex in the City. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Trey McDougal, according to IMDb. Dr. McDougal, if you will. Yes. <laughs> All right. Mary, thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. And I will be right back with Kevin Floyd. I am joined this week by Kevin Floyd, one of the partners in Shoot the Moon, a new restaurant coming soon to Spring Branch. Kevin, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Look, I always, I always like to start these interviews at kind of the beginning of a person's career. So how did you, how did you become interested in the, in the world of bars and restaurants? I'd always kind of been interested in food in general. I mean, as a, like a little kid, you know, I, I helped my mom and my grandmother cook a whole lot and cooking was always kind of a part of my family's uh, tradition. My, you know, granny cooked a whole lot when I was really small. So it's kind of always been something I did. And then, you know, when I was young, I was never in a house that, that drank things like, you know, Budweiser or Bud Light. My dad always drank something a little bit more interesting. He spent a lot of time in California uh, back in the early eighties. So he drank a lot of Sierra Nevada and anchor steam. And so I, I was just kind of in that, you know, in that world a lot. And then as I you know grew up, 
I always kind of had a fascination with uh, food and beverage in general. And then my, you know, my real career kind of started, I, I worked at Chick-fil-A when I was like 15, but my real career started uh, in college and I was bartending waiting tables uh, through school and I could make, you know, my rent in a night or something like that. And then when I graduated college, I was kind of of that generation. I graduated in 04. So I was kind of that, of that generation where we kind of thought that all we had to do was graduate college and we'd go find a great job, you know, not really realizing that the job market wasn't really like that. So I was making really good money in the hospitality industry and I was working with a, um, a chain concept, national chain concept at the time and did a whole bunch of training and development and new restaurant openings um, for them. And so that was kind of my early career uh, was working in, in chain concept or a chain concept doing, you know, openings and, and, and development for them. And then I kind of got into independent stuff in my mid twenties when I moved back to Houston. Right. So I think, I think a lot of people may be familiar with at least some of your career. I mean, I, I know you're one of the people who opened Anvil. How did you kind of become involved in that? So Bobby Hugel and I were best friends in high school and college. Um, I was a year older than him. So, you know, when I graduated college, I, I moved off and I kept, I did a lot more of the training development stuff for uh, the chain concept. And, you know, he moved up North to the Chicago area to do grad school. And we ended up uh, back in Houston at the same time uh, a couple of years later for different reasons. And, and he had, and he had gotten to see and kind of be part of the early cocktail scene up in the Chicago area. And, uh, you know, we started working together again and he was telling me all about this stuff that he was that this whole national cocktail movement. So this was, you know, uh, this is 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Um, and, uh, telling me all about this national cocktail movement. And, you know, really what we wanted to do was we wanted to work for a, a, a concept that was doing, you know, this high end cocktails that, that, that he had seen. And there just wasn't anything like that in this, in this market. So we decided, that we should go ahead and open it up. So you've got a 24 year old, you know, 23, 24 year old, 24, 25 year old that really had no, no idea what they were doing aside from how to make a good drink and how to run a bar, but construction development, financing, all that other stuff that goes into opening your own business. We had no idea what we were doing. And, uh, you know, the result was Anvil uh, and it turned out amazing. So that was my first jaunt really into the independent bar and restaurant scene. Bobby had spent a lot of years working just in the independent bar and restaurant scene, not just in Chicago, but in, in Texas. But, you know, really, besides a really short tenure at Beavers, before we did Anvil, my entire career had been corporate. And so Anvil was really my first exposure to the independent scene. I think I may have shared this anecdote when Bobby was on the show a long time ago. I, I was friends with, well, I still am friends with, someone who at the time was a Poison Girl regular when Anvil opened and he was like, no one's going to want to stand around waiting five minutes for a drink. Right. You know, that place is going to close. That place is going to close in six months. So we bet dinner on Anvil's prospects. Cause I'd been, I'd been to Beavers a few times. I'd met Bobby. I'd, I was reading his blog and I just, I just had a feeling that like the time was right, you know, and I wasn't writing yet. I was, I was in a different field, but I was, you know, I was a foodie. I was, I was, following people on Twitter and stuff. And so we bet dinner and he paid that off in about two months because it became, I mean, it was just like lightning in a bottle, right? I mean, that place took off almost immediately. Well, and you know, what, what a lot of people don't remember about Amble was that, you know, we, we didn't think it was going to be that successful. Like, you know, I remember the earth, like the first schedule that, that Bobby wrote for staffing had, had him working Sunday nights behind the bar with a bar bag. And that was the staff, right? Because that's, you know, we figured what all we'd see on Sunday nights would be like a little bit of industry folks. And that was it. So I don't think anybody really anticipated that Anvil was going to become what it was. I mean, for us, it was about, we just really wanted to make really good drinks. And we wanted to do everything as right as we possibly could at that time within our knowledge. And everything else kind of flowed from that. Right. And I, right. I mean, that was kind of the, you know, the engine that pulled the rest of this train. I mean, you, you, I mean, from there you guys partnered with Chris Shepard and you opened uh, Underbelly and Haymerchant. Yeah. Right. So yeah, we did Anvil and we did Underbelly and Haymerchant with Chris. Uh, Blacksmith was in that mix too with David. Um, and then uh, 
you know, kind of spread out from there. I ended up spending, uh, I mean, all my professional time ended up becoming generally focused on Underbelly and Hay Merchant as my role there kind of grew and changed. I mean, what I was originally slated to do at Hay Merchant was just be the front of the house director and the beer buyer. And over the, the first few years of that concept, I kind of grew into this, this overall director of operations role that kind of had involvement in almost everything except for, you know, creative culinary um, and then, so during that time, you know, Bobby uh, did you know, Julep and then some stuff downtown. Okra was in that mix, uh, Pace Award, Nightingale Room. Um, and then, you know, Bobby and I, who had been, who'd been friends for a really long time, uh, you know, realized that we were just going in kind of different directions with our career. He was really wanting to focus a lot on, you know, uh, smaller uh, concepts in more beverage centric. And I really wanted to focus a lot more on food. So we kind of split the companies up and I, I you know, I, I gave him Amble at the time and he gave me his shares in Underbelly and Hay Merchant. And then Chris and I did a few more things after that. Uh, we did one fifth and then, you know, we converted uh, Underbelly into Georgia James. And in that envelope, we also opened up um, UBP. And then again, kind of, you know, as that stuff was developing, my life took a, a big change. My wife and I um, had a daughter, you know, who's now four, um, but at the time she was, you know, really young. I actually opened up one fifth with her on my chest in a baby Bjorn, um, which makes for a really cute picture, but in retrospect, it kind of questions <laughs> what you're doing as a, as a parent. Um, and so, you know, Chris and I realized that, uh, you know, just like Bobby and I, we were kind of in different places in our career. And I, I really wanted to grow something that uh, allowed me to, to, to do something reproducible and, and scalable kind of going back to my corporate roots where I saw how you could have, uh, you know, a huge 150 location national chain. And Chris really wanted to keep focused on, you know, one-off really creative, you know, really pushing the envelope concepts. And so, you know, I got into, uh, I was really fortunate to have Chris and our other partner, Todd, who are super great guys put together an opportunity for me to exit the company and uh, be able to, to take that next step which is, is where shoot the moon, you know, came from is this idea of being able to take all the, all the cool stuff that I've learned over the last nearly 15 years of independent bar and restaurant career with the, the, the creative innovative developmental stuff, but do it in a way that is approachable to a larger segment of, of, of the population and also do it in a way that's easily reproducible. Yeah, no. And, and, and I, and I promise we're, we're going to spend like the next 15 minutes talking about shoot the moon, but I, I do just kind of want to emphasize to the audience because you kind of yada yada that, right? From 2008 to about the end of 2017, you were directly responsible for opening Anvil, Hay Merchant, Underbelly, Blacksmith, Julep, Okra, uh, the Nightingale Room, Pastry War. Is that it? Did I am I am I missing anything? Is that is that I think that full I mean, list? Uh, Georgia James UBP and one fifth. Oh yeah, right. Sorry, right. Uh, one of the one of the best steakhouses in the city, the restaurant that won the James Beard Award and its ex- evolution, and the crazy innovative restaurant that changes its concept every year. The, the the one modification I would make to that statement is that I was directly involved in. Like I I, I want to be really honest. I had a great partners, and it was a completely collaborative you know partnership between me and my partners at the time. So yeah, I was directly involved in all those things. I was not solely responsible for those. But yeah, they were, they were my entire life. You know, my entire life for over a decade was spent solely focused on developing with my partners, these, all these concepts. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible, you know, Houston restaurant resume. I just, for people who maybe like they know Bobby or they know Chris, like maybe they don't know the extent to which you were involved. I just feel like you deserve a little you know, props to you, Kevin Floyd. I guess that's really all I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was really stressful. Right? I'm not going to lie. Like when you put it like that, I think about the, the last 10 years and I'm like, oh man, that was a lot of work. It was super stressful, but it was also great times. I mean, it was, there was, it was amazing to see, it was amazing to see what Anvil was, you know, and, and, or, or what, what, you know, what, what Amble turned into and how quickly it turned to that. It was amazing to see, you know, it was amazing to get the opportunity to be able to do Hay Merchant, which was, you know, the first beer bar of its kind in Houston, where we didn't pull any punches on the draft system and the, the attention, the detail on, on the way that, 
that we handled the product. It was amazing to see Chris be able to, to have complete freedom to develop his own creative menus and, and all that stuff. So yeah, it was, it was awesome. It's a fun, it was a fun, fun time uh, in my life. So then let's talk about shoot the moon because in some ways, you know, I think the obvious comparison is Hey Merchant, right? The, the kind of craft beer focused, you know, restaurant, but I, you know, you know, when you opened Hey Merchant, right. Just having, just being able to say we have 30, 40, 50 taps of craft beer was like enough and out. And or now, just, just being able to say we had like three sour beers on tap. I think when we first opened up Hey Merchant and I had to really, I had to really look to get those three sour beers that were on draft. That was a big, that was a big revolutionary thing at the time. Right. You know, now you see all kinds of sours. Everywhere. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something like that. Right. So, so then, so then how did you kind of develop shoot as a concept that sort of takes advantage of frankly, a more sophisticated like beer and cocktail drinking public that in some ways you, you helped create. So the very first time I saw a self-service model was about, about the time, I think about a year or two after we opened up Anvil. It was the first time I went to the Great American Beer Festival in Denver. So it was probably about 10 years ago. And, you know, the thing about, the, about GABF, right, that's a really cool experience to go to, to, to go to GBF. But the reason why you go to GABF is to go to all the stuff that's happening in Denver around that same time. So I didn't even hardly spend any time in the convention hall. I was just out in Denver going to different dinners and, and events and stuff like that. And I ended up in this, it was like a, like a warehouse basically with a big walking cooler off to one side and a small cash register. And it was this self-service concept where you got a bracelet and you were able to open the taps on your own and pour your own beer. And I thought that was really amazing. The technology at the time was really chunky and it wasn't very user friendly and it was kind of buggy, but the overall concept of being able to um, give the guests this direct access to the product was fascinating to me. So I came back home and I talked to Bobby. I was like, this is, this is, this is before we opened up Hey Merch. I was like, this is the next concept. This is what I want to do. I want to do a self-service beer concept. It's so amazing. Da, da, da. Come to find out that that wasn't legal in Texas. So just put that off to the side, kind of forgot about it. And then, you know, went on with my career and, and did all that other stuff. And then, uh, so that's always been the back of my head. I was like, this is a cool concept. And I started to see these self-service concepts open elsewhere in the country. Every time I traveled, you know, I, you know, if I, if I saw there was one in that city, I'd go check it out. The technology was getting progressively better. It was more user-friendly. It was less buggy. And then after I had sold, uh, the, my underbelly hospitality position to my partners, I was doing some consulting work on the side for, for other clients just to kind of keep busy and kind of just favors for people that needed some help and stuff. And I was doing some research for a client um, who was getting ready to open a concept. And I came across the TABC position memo that outlined their change in policy toward the self-service. And it was like two weeks after they'd released this memo and, and I hadn't heard anything about this. So I picked up the phone, I called my TABC contact. I was like, Hey, can we do self-service? And I told the whole, I explained the whole thing to him. He's like, no, there's no way. He's like, that's totally illegal. And then he called me back like an hour and a half later. He's like, oh, I just saw that email you sent. He's like, yeah, I guess that's a thing now. So that was kind of where shoot the moon started from. I was like, okay, cool. So now I can do self-service. And so here we go. So I reached out to uh, the guys who are now my partners, Jonas Hurd and Dax McInear, who are two guys I've known for years. Uh, I've known Dax for like almost as long as I've been in Houston. You know, he was, you know, he was the executive sous chef at Beaver's before Bobby and I opened up Anvil and he helped us open up Anvil. And, you know, he and I have been buddies for a long time. Uh, and then Jonas's family uh, runs Collaborative Projects, which is the build design firm, which did a whole lot of my projects and have done a whole lot of, you know, notable projects around town. Uh, you know, you know uh, Rice Box is, is one of them, Kushara, uh, you know, they did the original work on, um, Catalan, which is Chris's restaurant. That was their first restaurant in Houston was Catalan, which is Chris's restaurant before he did Underbelly. So they've been around the Houston bar and restaurant scene for a while. And I've done a lot of stuff with them and Jonas and I have a really good relationship. And so I call these two guys up because we've been talking a lot for you know years about doing projects together. And the three of us have a lot of similarities. Uh, we all have families. We all have um, at least one kid. All of our kids are about the same age. We've kind of been in the scene for the same time. We all kind of have the same general philosophies about what we want to do. 
So I called them up and I said, I've got this idea. And I laid it all out to them. Counter service food that's chef driven, but still casual and approachable and like price point friendly and self-service beverage. And so that's where the shoot the moon concept came up from is, you know, we spent the next month or so bouncing ideas around and really refining what we wanted our, our multi-location self-service counter service concept to be. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the self-service. Cause I, I, I saw a video, I, it may have been on Twitter like a week or two. And I don't remember, I don't remember who retweeted it into my timeline, but I saw a video of a woman drinking straight from a tap, which does not seem like a good idea. Yeah, no, that would be a really bad idea. Uh, so what self-service is, is it utilizes technology to allow guests direct access to the project a, a, a product in a responsible, monitored way. And so I want you to picture a, a draft beer bar, kind of like Hay Merchant or maybe Flying Saucer, that's got a big tap wall, but there's no bar. So the taps are just right there. And over every tap or every other tap or whatever, there's computer screens. And so the way it's going to work at Shoot shoot the Moon is you're going to go in, you're going to go to the counter, you're going to get your ID checked, your age verified, you're going to open a tab, you'll order your food, um, and you'll take care of all the paperwork stuff right there at the beginning. So uh, we're going to go with a a service fee model instead of a tip model. We can talk about that more in a minute. But we've kind of developed it all to where you've got to go to the counter once, and then you've got all the kind of business side of the transaction taken care of. You'll authorize your your card and everything else. And then you're going to get an access card. An access card is your, is your one-way pass to all of the beverage. And then you can go up and down the wall. You can pick beer, wine, liquor, cocktails, and you put your access card in the reader and the system is going to charge you by the ounce. And so the system is accurate to, with one, to, to within one-tenth of an ounce. So if you want one ounce or 16 ounces or whatever, you pour yourself whatever you want and it's going to charge you whatever you poured back to your card. And then um, when you're done with your visit, because you've taken care of all the paperwork part on the front end, you don't even have to go and check out with anybody. You can just walk out of the building, drop your access card in a box on your way out, and you're done. So the system has some responsibility limits built into it, which is A, just a good idea, but also B, required by TABC. So the system will only allow you to pour yourself a certain amount before it will cut off service. And then you need to be reauthorized by a staff member. So there'll be somebody working the wall that can kind of answer questions and that kind of stuff. But other than that, that one thing, uh, you're free to kind of choose your own adventure as far as what you drink and how much you drink and whether you have a taste or a full glass. Right. So I guess, I guess start with kind of selection. I mean, how many taps, like, how are you going to kind of allocate that between wine, beer, cocktail spirits? And like, what's the, what's the range? I mean, is it stuff we've heard of? Is it more obscure? Like, what are you? Yeah. So it's a, it, it's a little bit of, of both, right? Um, so first of all, um, we're going to have uh, 82 total selections. Um, and those are going to be broken up uh, into 32 beers and then uh, 22 or 24 wines and uh, 24 liquor selections. So kind of an even split. I mean, it's basically a third, a third, a third between beer, wine, and liquor. And for as far as the beer goes, it's going to be pretty consistent with what you come to expect from me based on my history with Hay Merchant. It's going to be mainly all craft. It's going to have a lot of local focus. It is a smaller beer program. It's only 32 taps. Uh, and so I've, I've run bigger beer programs before. Uh, so it's going to be more focused. You're going to see a lot less rotation. Like at Hay Merchant, we rotated all the time. We were constantly, we only had like 10 or 12 or 15 taps that were permanent. And the rest of the selections were constantly changing and rotating. This will be more permanent. We won't have so much crazy rotation, but it's going to be focused on, on local uh, and, and craft. And so there'll be, you know, there'll be, there'll be some national craft. I've got, great relationship with breweries like Sierra Nevada. I really love and respect those guys and some international stuff, but you know, uh, mainly all craft and a lot of local. Um, that's, that's for the beer side. And then the wine side, wine is interesting because it's probably the one 
uh, beverage category that I, I have the least amount of like technical training in and I have the least amount of education, but I love wine. I drink, a, I, I drink wine probably more often now than I drink beer. Uh, so you're going to see um, a pretty balanced program. We're going to have a couple of wines on tap. So we'll have like a, a, a white, a rosé and a couple of reds on tap. And then we're going to um, have some uh, by the bottle uh, or from our from the bottle by the ounce selections uh, using uh, some some interesting technology. So what you'll see there is like our house wines are going to be on draft. And then more interesting stuff is going to be in the bottle. And that's really kind of where I get to experiment and, and play around with uh, because the, the enigmatic wine dispensing machines, which you've probably seen something similar to this at a place like HEB where you plug the bottle in and the system pulls out um, by the ounce uses uh, nitrogen to keep the oxygen out. We can put a bottle in that machine and it's good for like 30 days. So stuff that you would never see in a by the glass program because it's either kind of too weird or it's too expensive, we're going to be able to put in those machines and do a lot of fun stuff. So like in the sparkling machine, I really want to do like at least one super high end sparkling wine um, that you never see by the glass. Now it'll probably be something like Krug. And then you'll see like uh, something more price appropriate towards the end and some other stuff in the middle. So like, I mean, so like if Krug is $200 a bottle retail or whatever, you can expect to spend you might spend 25 or $30 for an ounce of crew. I mean, that right. would be, but that's like the only way most people might get to their first taste of it. You know, well, you know you so I was looking at crew the other day, uh, somewhere I was like, uh, it's specs or somewhere and it was 230 a bottle of retail. Right. So if you just do the simple math on that, that's $9 and 20 cents per ounce retail. So you might not go buy a bottle of crew for $230 retail, but you want to try it? You want to try an ounce? You know, here it is for eight or nine dollars. Um, you know, feel free to try it. And that's kind of that's where I think that that kind of stuff is going to be well received. You know, I would be really surprised if we were moving through bottles and bottles and bottles of crude. But if we're moving through just one or two bottles of crude a month, then I'm happy with that because that means that people are getting an opportunity to taste something that they would never taste before and not have to lay out a bunch of money to get that experience. Right, and and I is it going to kind of be similar on the spirit selection where you you'll have, I don't know, Jack Daniels or wild Turkey or like kind of very common well-known spirits, but also, you know, maybe some more obscure kind of break even bottle type. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to have 12 spirits on draft, which you've seen draft spirits before, you know, for net on draft as a thing, you know, all that is, is right. Everybody's seen the Jägermeister machine, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So similar to that. So we'll have 12 spirits on, on tap and those are going to kind of be your house spirits, right? So wild Turkey one one like that is my go-to daily drinking bourbon. So that, you know, that will be on tap. So you'll see, you know, one or two of all of the main spirit types on draft and they're going to be your house, more price appropriate uh, kind of things. And then we're going to have eight bottles in an enigmatic machine that are going to be just whatever I can get that I think is really cool and kind of break even situation in like higher end, you know, bottles. And so a lot of that stuff, I might only have one bottle of that, or maybe I have two bottles of that. And, um, you know, I'll be able to put that in the machine for people to be able to try or to have that opportunity, um, to get into that stuff. So yeah, you know, the wine and the spirits program are really similar in, in, in the fact that we got house stuff that's your daily drinking, more price appropriate stuff. And then we're going to get into some more experimental higher end random stuff. That's really just there for people to be able to have that experience, but to be able to have that experience in a by the ounce or a quarter of an ounce in the case of spirits situation and not have to lay out a bunch of money uh, to either go find it in retail, which can be hard or to go to a normal bar, which has got a little bit higher of a markup because they're worried about spoilage and waste. Right. So, so if you basically, if you want to like quarter ounce of Winkle or something, you know, this will, this will be your chance. Yeah. Yeah. If I will say, if I can get access to that, right. I mean, like it, it's hard for even us on, on the on-premise side because the demand for that stuff is so high, you know, you've really got to pull favors and stuff to be able to get that. But yeah, that's, that's the goal, right. Is to be able to, to grow STM to the point where we can get access to that stuff on a fairly regular basis and put it out to the public in such a way that it's, it's easier for them to at least try it 
um, than it is for them to you know get it elsewhere. All right, and then let's talk about the food a little bit. I mean, I, I mean, I know you're kind of building around pizza. Yeah. So historically speaking, pizza is like my favorite food of all time. Uh, I don't eat it all the time because otherwise I'd be like 800 pounds. But I, I really love pizza. So I've wanted to do kind of a pizza centric concept for a long time. So when we, so when we were first putting shoot the moon together, I was like, pizza. We're going to build a menu around pizza, but. We also need to, you know, build a balanced menu and be able to really kind of showcase uh, some of Dax's talents. And so the menu is roughly a third pizzas, a third small plates, which, you know, a lot of people would think of as like appetizers, uh, but just kind of smaller portions of, of stuff. And then about a third uh, healthy, uh, healthy entrees. So, um, yeah, I mean, we should say, right, Dax has a pretty extensive resume of his own. I mean, he worked at Underbelly uh, for a little while, I I, I mean, I think when I met him, he was working at Trinity. Uh, yeah, so he's worked for Monica Pope, Chris Shepard, Ryan Hildebrandt, uh, Ryan Perra. Uh, you know, he's worked at a lot of the. He's kind of like me in in some ways in the in the fact that he's been involved in a lot of concepts that people know of, but you might not unless you're in the industry, you might not know who Dax is. You might have never met Dax. Right. So give me some specifics. Like, what are kind of the healthy? you know, what kind of healthy options are, are you thinking about? Yeah. So on, on, on the healthy side, like, you know, like I said, like if I had my brothers, I eat pizza every day, but you know, I, I, I can't because I would just, you know, that's just not a healthy choice. So my wife and I uh, really try to live, you know, a healthy lifestyle as much as we can. So like every year we do the whole 30 for a month. And then I generally try to, to keep, you know, keto and, and paleo friendly as much as possible when I can. So the healthy entree section it's going to have salads, but it's not just going to be only salads. It's going to have, you know, cool chef driven composed entrees, but have an eye to things like whole 30 compliancy, paleo, uh, paleo friendly, gluten free. So some of the ideas we've thrown around are things like a whole 30 compliant shrimp and grits, which uses, um, a sausage that, that doesn't have any sugar added to it. And instead of grits, it uses, uh, a mashed cauliflower. Or things like a, a paleo-friendly uh, roasted chicken. So like a, ro- a chicken thigh marinated in uh, chipotle and cherries uh, and then confit and then oven roasted, you know, served on top of um, steamed greens or, or, or something like that. Um, so all those types of ideas, you know, are, we're, we're kind of throwing around uh, and, and, and put that kind of stuff out there that's good delicious, well thought of, well made, but also not, you know, crazy heavy fried, uh, you know, decadent stuff, stuff that you can still have a pretty good uh, calorie count on, but not skimp on flavor. And then pizza, just kind of classic New York style deck oven. Uh, so we're using a impinger conveyor oven. So it will be between a hand tossed and a thin crust. Um, so it won't have that super crispy, crispy thin that you associate with like a wood-fired deck oven. Uh, a, because um, that's a, a really hard pizza to travel. Those types of thin crust pizzas don't to go well at all. I mean, they're really only good right out of the oven. Uh, B, um, it takes a lot of culinary skill to be able to work a wood-burning deck oven real, real well. And so I, I don't want to have to to, uh, to worry about guest consistency based on who happens to be working a pizza oven that night. And so I like the, the impinger oven, uh, the conveyor impinger, because it kind of removes that part of it out so that the pizza is always the same all the time. Um, and then, um, you know, so we're looking at something that's going to travel well, that's going to be the same all the time, but, you know, the ingredients and the concept are all chef-driven. So you'll be able to get your classic pepperoni, but there's also going to be other combinations that, that are going to be the featured pizzas, like the named pizzas. There'll be about 10 of them that are, are things that Dax and I have developed that are maybe some more unusual combinations of flavors or just more interesting stuff as well. We will only have the one size of pizza. So um, it's going to be one diameter and then the crust thickness can vary. So you can do like a double crust, which it will be like double the dough to get a slightly thicker hand tossed um, feel, or you can go with a single crust, which will be more towards a thin crust, but not like a complete thin crust. Yeah. I, uh, I know there's some people who've been, you know, since Dolce Vita closed, it's like, I can't get 
you know, I can't get potato on a pizza, you know, yeah. or I can't get arugula on a pizza or, you know, yeah. there's, there's all these like topping possibilities. Well, so Dolce Vita, it's funny you bring that up. So Dolce Vita was my wife and I's first date and it was where I proposed to her at. And so we have kind of a special place in our heart for Dolce Vita because I really liked egg on a pizza, you know, uh, which was something you could get at Dolce Vita, which is hard to find elsewhere. So those types of things, those are near and dear to my heart. So you're going to see those come up in, in similar ways at, at, at Shoot the Moon. All right. And then I know you're, you're building this thing. Um, when are you, when are you looking at opening? Man, uh, hopefully soon. So we're, everything's progressing. It's, you know, uh, well, uh, it's COVID. So everything is, is constantly changing and taking a little longer than we all thought it would take. Um, if you had asked me like a year and a half ago, what's the hardest thing you've ever done? And I would, I would have said something like, Oh, opening a bar when I was 25 and I had no idea what I was doing or something like that. And now I'd tell you it's opening a restaurant in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> it's been like the most challenging thing we've ever done. So, you know, we're thinking that we'll be open in the next, um, eight weeks or so, but I was really thinking we would hopefully be open by May and we've already, you know, obviously, you know, missed that completely. So we're working on pulling the last bit of capital together that we need to finish the project. Um, and, uh, you know, construction's, on, you know, moving along and it's looking good in there. Uh, they're, they're moving into the fit and finish stage. So finishes are going up, you know, we need to get our kitchen equipment ordered and all that stuff. So, um, hopefully, hopefully soon, hopefully like, uh, you know, two months. All right. And then you said, you said this is intended to be multi-unit. So, um, I mean, I, there's all kind of, every real estate developer in town swears you're kicking tires on locations. Have you found, have you found where you're going to put the second one yet? Yeah. So we have, we have decided where we're going to put the second one. Uh, I'm not going to reveal that yet. Uh, we've got a few more things that have to kind of fall into place uh, from a business perspective in order for that to, to be finalized. But yeah, it's designed from the very beginning as a multi-location chain. So our first location in Spring Branch um, is going to kind of be our our debut premier location, but it's also the home of our commissary kitchen. So we already have a commissary line in. We're going to have all the commissary equipment in as well. So, you know, one of the things that Dax and I talked about a whole lot was being able to do from scratch, fresh, chef-driven product in a multi-location environment. How do you do that? Well, you, you, you analyze your critical control points in the kitchen and figure out where you can, where you can increase efficiencies in those control points. And we, we landed upon the commissary, which will allow Dax to be able to have his, have his direct influence on the raw production. So making tomato sauce, for example, or making dough, for example, be able to control the raw production for not just one location, but for all of our initial locations. So we can make sure that even though Dax might not be able to be in every kitchen every night, he is you know, personally overseeing the raw production of all those ingredients every day. So that fresh from scratch chef driven mentality can be in multiple locations. Yeah. So do you have a, do you have a goal in mind? I want to have locations in five years. I mean, do you have like a, a target? Yeah. Five locations in five years is a nice round number. And that's kind of what we're shooting for. Um, and, uh, you know, we, sh we should still be able to do that even in the COVID environment. Uh, you know, once we get the first location up and running. Yeah. Has the, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping this up. I know we're running along, but have you, has the design changed at all in, in regards to COVID? I mean, have you, how are you accounting for that? Well, so that's, what's really, you know, crazy about this whole uh, situation is that I, I designed and, and conceived of Shoot the Moon to address some of the, the problems and issues that I saw in the industry overall when it came down to like labor uh, control and cost of goods control and stuff like that and guest interaction and guest control. And so um, when COVID happened and we started to reanalyze what the, what, what the market looked like, we found that pretty much every single thing that we needed to do to make Shoot the Moon work in a post-COVID world, we were already doing. So the only thing that we really redesigned um, was we took 
some tables off the main dining room and we, and we increased the distancing of the tables, but otherwise, you know, so like, for example, in a normal restaurant experience, the guest is going to interact with the staff between eight and 12 times, uh, which is a problem in a, in a, in a COVID environment for shoot the moon. The guests will interact with the staff between two and three times. And that's not a response to COVID. That's just the way we designed Shoot the Moon to work uh, to give the guests more flexibility with their experience. So, yeah, I think that Shoot the Moon is really, even before COVID, it was already kind of designed to be the restaurant concept of the future. Uh, and all of the things, all the innovative things we're doing also really work in the current environment. All right. Well, Kevin, I think that be uh, kind of the end of my questions. Um, give us the website for Shoot the Moon. It's uh, shoottheMoonTexas.com. And uh, Instagram? At shoottheMoonTexas. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.